welcome to On Geopolitics, this podcast from the Centre for Geopolitics at the University of Cambridge. I'm Suzanne Rain and I'm joined by my regular co-host Ali Ansari. Today, obviously, we're talking about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The Centre for Geopolitics has just held an in-person event, a panel including with some speakers broadcasting in from Ukraine, and we're pleased now to be joined by two people from that event to talk through some of the main themes that came up in the discussion. They are Professor Rory Finnin, Associate Professor of Ukrainian Studies at Cambridge University, and our very own Professor Brendan Sims, Brendan's Professor of the History of International Relations, and he's Director of the Centre for Geopolitics. Rory, could I turn to you first of all and ask you to start by summarising where things are now and some of the conclusions that came out of your event this earlier today. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. Um, I do want to begin by mentioning that uh, listeners should visit uh, ukraineinstitute.org.uk for ways to support Ukraine right now. One thing that is abundantly clear is this is a independent, democratic, sovereign country that is being attacked at the moment as we speak. I want us to be as present as we can um, to uh, the human uh, costs of what's going on. And I know Brendan and, and Ali and Suzanne, you all agree with that. And as officers of the university, I, I want to make sure that uh, I express my condemnation for what's going on and my solidarity with Ukrainians. And um, there was, as I mentioned, a great deal discussed. Uh, it was a sobering conversation in a number of ways. Maybe I can begin by just um, highlighting what's happening in Ukraine itself um, under attack um, Brendan and I were speaking before about the um, heroic scenes of everyday Ukrainians standing up to invading forces in the face of rockets falling on Kiev. Right now, many rockets falling on Kharkiv, uh, Ukraine's second largest city. Um, these are heartbreaking scenes. They're also um, very inspiring as well because they show us everyday Ukrainians who are standing up for their country against foreign aggression. Um, we talked a good bit about Ukrainian national identity, and one of the things we tried to do is dispel the reductive myths that it's divided or divided in any meaningful way. All modern societies are divided one way or another. Um, Ukraine is united where it counts in its sense of self, uh, in its national identity. I spoke about what informs this identity and what it has um, held to for centuries, particularly in Ukraine's political culture, and that is a uh, desire to achieve not only for the Ukrainian lands, but even for um, what we call the Slavic world, universal democratic freedom. And that really motivates um, so many Ukrainians today, which is why we see these stirring scenes on uh, Maidan in 2014, um, in the so-called revolution on granite in 1990, or the Orange Revolution in 2004. So we're seeing that now um, in the midst of this grave crisis. So we wanted to make sure that, first of all, everyone understood that Ukraine is united, and it shouldn't be surprising. Um, we talked about 30 years of failure, frankly, of the West. One of those failures, I think, was acknowledging that Ukraine has its own story to tell, that Ukraine is a country with a people with their own sense of a historical trajectory, and as I mentioned, a political sense of itself. So that leads us to what's going on today. And, and I think, you know, we need to be as clear eyed as possible about um, the stakes of this conflict, because essentially Vladimir Putin is um, seeking destroy, to destroy the Ukrainian state in its current form. This is something that's been going on since 2014. 
Um, this is just the nightmarish extension of the same logic that applied when the Kremlin annexed Crimea in 2014, uh, when it invaded eastern Ukraine. Um, we in the West have gotten used to um, saying that Putin would never do certain things. So I was told very often when forces arrived in Crimea in 2014 that Putin would never be so reckless as to actually annex the peninsula. Um, after that point, when I mentioned that 55,000 troops were amassed along the eastern border, I was often told Putin wouldn't be so reckless to invade Ukraine. And this goes on and on. We've seen it time and time again. So I think now the world understands uh, what he is capable of and in many respects why it's happening, because Putin's rhetoric has really torn off the mask um, about Kremlin policy vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine, and that is just to destroy Ukraine. Um, as a democratic independent state, there are a lot of internal political reasons why. One of them is that um, a successful, democratic, prosperous neighbor that has a similar historical inheritance with many different connections to the Russian people is a threat to Putin's kleptocratic regime. That's clear. Um, the other one is that Putin has great antipathy to the West, and we've underestimated and undersold this antipathy, even hatred of the West, for far too long. Um, right now, of course, the discussion about NATO seems to me um, is something of a ruse. That is, the discussion isn't about um, NATO and Ukraine and Ukraine wanting NATO membership prior to 2014. It was a very mi minority position among the Ukrainian population. But obviously, once your country is invaded um, with its territory annexed, naturally, um, the response will be an alliance um, is needed here. So Putin has been the one pushing, in effect, NATO membership upon Ukraine. And in fact, um, prior to that, uh, the Baltic states in 2004. So those are the, I think, main highlights without me wanting to be long-winded about what's going on today, the tragedy of today. Um, I'll leave it there and maybe we can pick up some other threads. Yeah, thank you. And uh, so I'm going to hand over to, to Brendan. Brendan, one of the things as well that struck me recently listening to Putin's messaging was the way he was using some of the some of the terms actually genuinely that come out in your book about Hitler so describing the West as the Anglo-Saxons for example mm. um, what's your take on that well what what Putin wants to do it emerged very clearly from uh, the deliberate deliberations this afternoon is to not to reconstitute uh, the Soviet Union, that's a common misconception, but very specifically to reconstitute the uh, territorial boundaries of the old Soviet Union. That's something quite different. Um, and uh, that seems to have been his concern uh, for, for a very long time. Uh, and this then merges with an attitude towards Ukraine, uh, which is one of simply refusing to accept Ukrainian nationality as something distinct from Russianness. Um, and refusing to accept basically the existence of the Ukrainian state. Uh, and, and one of the points that came across very strongly, also from our military experts, but also from those who were specifically knowledgeable about Russia, is that this fact explains the disconnect, perhaps, uh, between uh, the expectations the Russian military had moving into Ukraine and the reality. So they, in their own mind, they were carrying out uh, a simple police operation against a number of criminals uh, and fascist thugs. That was their conception of what they were doing. Um, whereas in reality, they were moving in and attacking a sovereign state uh, whose population was highly or became highly mobilized 
in defense of their freedoms. Um, and so the big question we were left with is, uh, you know, whether Putin is capable uh, of actually understanding what is happening, of accepting what is happening, um, and whether the Russian population uh, begins to see that this is happening and act upon it. So these were the imponderables. One that makes me think of an article by Jack Watling at Rusi that I read today, uh, based on some papers which had come into their possession, I think from the Ukrainians, which were an F- an FSB, so Russian Internal External Intelligence Service summary of um, population attitudes in Ukraine in February 2022. And it's really interesting because essentially it says people in Ukraine are disillusioned with their politics. They, um, you know, they they like the church. They think everyone's corrupt. Actually, they just don't really want to engage in it. And, and, and his point was from that, the Russian system will have deduced that there wasn't actually the sort of desire within the Ukrainian people to defend that system. But but the point that, that the Rusi paper makes, which is, of course, they, they probably didn't really probe into, you might be disillusioned with your politicians, but is it the case that you want to get rid of them and become part of Russia? Definitely, that's a separate question. Um, we're all a bit disillusioned with politicians. That doesn't mean... You know, and, and then suddenly being being made acutely aware that your state is under threat it it changes all of that rory i mean you you've just spoken about the the sort of the sense of ukrainian identity does that chime with how you see it in many ways yes suzanne because one thing to understand about the ukrainian national project is that it always had a suspicion of the state it always had suspicion of strongmen leaders so I talked very, very briefly in our session about the importance of the poetry of Taras Shevchenko because that is, let's say, the founding document of Ukrainian uh, national identity, something that all Ukrainians across the country um, uphold and, and, and treasure and cherish in various ways. And it was always a story about being something different from Polish arist- uh, aristocracy and Russian autocracy. Um, But because it was a stateless national movement until 1917, it naturally had suspicion about structures of state control anyway. So that is built into the Ukrainian national self. That is, they're always suspicious of of politicians, which has partly led to, let's say, a dysfunction in statecraft. But the problem is we study Ukraine so poorly. I mean, I'm pre- uh, president company, of course, excluded here. Um, we, 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 we study it poorly because we look at the state and we don't look at civil society. And Ukraine has arguably, and I think right now you can see the most vib- vibrant civil society in all of Europe. It is grassroots, well-connected, um, and very, very, very motivated. As for Putin and Hitler, I'm, I'm of course, um, uh, very aware of the dangers of the analogy, although I think it's worth saying that um, Hitler was complaining about the Treaty of Versailles as something that humiliated Germans six years or so after the fact. Putin last Monday was complaining about the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk 100, <laughs> 100, years, 100 years later, 100 years later. And I don't think it's just posturing. Um, his... Uh, essay about you know Ukrainian history in the summer of, of last year in which he insisted that Ukrainians and Russians are one people something he said for absolutely you know, 
for years now, he said. It's his most prominent refrain and a constant among all these variables. So I think it's important for us to accept the failure of understanding Ukraine all this time, for us to take on board how civil society sometimes acts as a proxy state, and how, in fact, if we're going to talk about the genius of Putin, for instance, which I actually would like us to really unpack and challenge, um, in 2014, it was very clear to them that their strategic goals in invading eastern Ukraine in a hybrid operation that involves special forces, as well as marginal, marginal groups that we knew about in Ukraine for, far, for a very long time. These were people um, on the very, very uh, extreme margins of Ukrainian political life in eastern Ukraine. One of them was a, a renta, Father Christmas. Um, and when you are able to arm those people and couple them with special forces and take various city halls, for instance, in Luhansk, Donetsk, um, you make gains. But what they found in 2014 is they could only go so far with that plan and that Ukrainians actually stood up against that type of action. So they, they have seen for over eight years now how Ukrainians will fight back and defend the country. And that's exactly what worries me, is that perhaps they have calculated that th this defense may take place and that their plan B is to use overwhelming force, um, uh, particularly from the air, to decimate uh, Ukraine, which is why, of course, I'm very interested in getting out there with this kind of conversation to explain to people the stakes of this so that we can be as aggressive as possible in stopping it um, before it gets even worse than it is now. Quite right. And I think the Hitler analogy is, is a sort of automatic one. But the, another analogy of an authoritarian leader who terrorized his own generals as well as, um, as, well as his population is Saddam Hussein. Who, who, just like Putin, was absolutely clear and explicit before he invaded Kuwait that he was going to invade Kuwait. So he said it before he did it. And he said, Kuwait is part of your country and it was carved out from it in the past. So that same mm -hmm. narrative. Mm -hmm. So in a way, there's, there's another parallel there, which mm -hmm. we don't look at as much, but which shows us again this sort of what appears from the outside to be a, a crazed leader who is prepared to commit appalling barbarity even you know to keep his inner circle like an inner circle in a way so that question of who's going to do the coup are the generals going to stand up are the 150,000 Soviet troops currently bombarding Ukraine Soviet troops Russian, Russian Russian troops <laughs> currently bombarding Ukraine actually going to stand up and say no I, I don't want to do this and there don't appear to be any signs of that at the moment do there can, can I can I yeah. chip in? Um, I mean, one, one of the things uh, interesting, Rory. I mean, you're saying that we have, in a sense, neglected that that uh, that narrative, and I, I'm I'm curious about. And it ties in also with what Brendan said, really, about how the West, in some ways, has been complicit, in a sense, in ignoring Ukraine. I mean, I, I found that quite striking when I first encountered. Um, you know, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, we had lots of people coming over from the Soviet Union initially to come and, you know, uh, lecture and others. And I remember people then saying, I said, oh, it's so good to meet some Russians. And they said, no, no, we're Ukrainian. And I sort of thought, well, that's a bit odd. You know, I didn't quite understand what that was about, but that was quite early on. Uh, and, I, and I'm sort of wondering whether we have, in a sense, um, tried to ignore it because it's a bit complicated. You know, we, we don't want to get involved in Ukraine. And at the same time, you know, to Brendan, you know, this sort of notion of, I mean, I think we saw similar things with Saddam Hussein and others that, you know, we sort of emphasize this sort of dark genius of Putin, partly as a way of saying, 
you know, we can't we can't deal with this. You know, he's he's far too clever. And I mean, I I've sort of seen that also with other countries as well, which I, I won't bring in here. But you know, there's this sort of um, you know, I just wonder to what extent we've just uh, been a bit indulgent over the last 20, even 30 years or whatever, of just sort of like pretending that problem doesn't exist. And now it's obviously come back to, in a sense, to bite us in a way that we simply cannot ignore anymore. I think the problem really uh, became acute from 2014. I think uh, the West could be forgiven for taking their eye off the ball until that point, because it appeared to... To an innocent observer, it appeared to be a question of a division within Ukraine. Um, all the talk, you know, in the Orange Revolution, which Rory was talking about earlier, uh, the talk was principally about the division between East and West, which, as he says, actually is much more confected and imagined than reality, certainly now anyway. Um, but that was the way, the framework within which we viewed it uh, in 2004, 2005. Um, and I think... Uh, the, the moment at which the West should have woken up was the annexation of, of Crimea and then, of course, the attack on uh, the two eastern uh, provinces uh, shortly afterwards. That was a huge breach in the international order. Uh, the first time territory had exchanged hands violently um, without being stopped in some way uh, in Europe uh, since 1945. And Essentially, what happened was that, yes, there was a response, but the magnitude of what had happened wasn't registered either in Washington or London, and most particularly not in Berlin. And so they developed or continue to develop uh, between 2014 and now a web of relationships of enmeshments, economic, resource related, political, uh, in, you know, especially uh, the familiar example of Nord Stream 2, uh, the question of uh, gas supply uh, from Russia to, to Germany and, and, and the rest of Europe, which made it then impossible or very difficult to envisage a confrontation uh, with Russia. So uh, the West took its eye off the ball in, in that respect for a very long time. And it also had a priority problem. Uh, after 2001, self-evidently, it was focused on, on the so-called uh, global war on terror. Uh, and then in the last four to five years, it's become increasingly focused on the threat from the PRC, uh, both of which threats are uh, or were highly significant. Um, but the question was, um, you know, are they not in some ways, certainly the PRC and Russia, somehow related? Uh, and should there not have been uh, basically a more integrated uh, response? Having said all that, I would... I would then add that the response of the West, by which I mean principally now uh, the, you know, as, as Putin would call them, the Anglo-Saxon powers, uh, the United States um, and the United Kingdom, their response over the last few months has actually been, I would say, almost exemplary in the sense that they call the intelligence situation right. They were actually, perhaps Rory can comment on this, but they were actually better informed than the Ukrainians. They believe the Russians were coming. I think the Ukrainians genuinely didn't think so until very shortly beforehand. Um, and they did below the radar begin to supply some of the weaponry, which has been pretty important in this conflict. So uh, there's been a late realization uh, on the Western side, but but I guess you might say better late than never. Ali, I, I think, Ali, I think the, um, the, the point you make about 
what has often been referred to in policy circles as quote unquote Ukraine fatigue. So probably my most hated term. Um, you know, when you're tired of the largest country by territory within the European continent and you cannot face its complicated uh, past, its complex composition, um, we really are making a series of mistakes. And a lot of that comes down to basics like um, understanding linguistic diversity, not um, as linguistic adversity. That is, Ukrainians are multilingual, they're bilingual, uh, so many of them are. Um, if they're speaking Russian, it doesn't mean that they necessarily espouse Russian political views, um, and, and they may be turning and speaking Ukrainian in, in, in a moment after that. So we're not very accustomed to that type of uh, bilingual um, uh, dynamism that you see in Ukraine. And I think often it was poorly read in that respect. And I think Brendan's absolutely right about the um, response post-2014 and Crimea in particular. One of the more frustrating things has been trying to point out how um, we've succumbed to this amnesia uh, or crimnesia rather um, about the peninsula, particularly the supply of water to the peninsula, because it's a it's a very arid, warm um, peninsula on the Black Sea. Historically, it's always needed the fresh water supply from the Dnipro River in mainland Ukraine that was cut off by the Ukrainian state in 2014 due to the annexation um, if we are to take Putin seriously as something of a strategist, naturally, um, it follows that he would seek to secure that freshwater supply um, in, in the same way that he would secure um, a, a fuller economically sufficient Donbass region, which the so-called Luhansk and Donetsk People's Republics um, occupied eastern Ukraine were never really fully economically uh, sufficient. One of the cities that is really key to the economic development of Donbass um, is Mariupol, which has been known as the gates of Donbass because it's from the, the port from which um, all the steel, uh, most of the steel is, um, is sent for export. So these types of basic nitty gritty strategic questions didn't really seem to interest a lot of people who are more interested in, uh, you know, uh, thinking through Putin's uh, mindset. And I think we did, as Brennan said, we just took our eyes off the ball. Rory, can I follow up on that with, with a, a small question, but a, but an interesting one? This is a, a relatively rare example of an invasion of one country by another country where the belligerents do speak the same language. And there are all sorts of clips on YouTube of Ukrainian women talking to Russian soldiers saying, what are you doing here? Please go home. How much of a difference do you think that is going to make to the dynamics on the ground? The fact that the two sides can communicate directly with each other? That's a great question. One of the things that um, has become very pertinent and apparent really at the moment is as these Russian forces begin to make their way uh, throughout Ukraine, um, and it's worth us saying that the Ukrainian armed forces, coupled with these territorial defense units, have put up uh, incredible resistance such that no city or, or, or town, major city, has been uh, claimed by Russian forces or held by Russian forces. Um, the, the big question is, of course, uh, sabot saboteurs and, um, and those who are seeking to, let's say, posture as Ukrainian troops. One of the ways that the Ukrainian armed forces has handled this is to use Ukrainian um, in their uh, command discourse. 
um, so that orders and um, those who follow them use the Ukrainian language so that uh, there isn't that confusion between um, uh, combat- combatants. Um, I do think in the, in the war on, let's say, hearts and minds, and I'm thinking here about the Russian public in particular, it's uh, potentially an advantage. Um, President Zelensky gave an extremely moving address to the, the Russian people um, on the eve of the invasion, um, in which he spoke in very simple everyday terms about the connections that he has to uh, parts of eastern Ukraine, to Russia. Um, the problem is, of course, can Russian citizens access that information on television, which is a major way in which Russians consume news? It's difficult to see such things. On the internet, though, it's a different story, although there have been uh, instances of clamping down. I think those with the VPN can get around them, which then raises the bigger question uh, of how many Russians actually support what's going on. And I'm sorry to say that I think it's a larger percentage of the Russian populace than we would like to admit, um, as much as there are those who, um, among the, let's say, younger generation, uh, particularly the Russian political opposition, there is a clear uh, distaste and disgust um, and disdain for what's going on. So um, the, the use of language could be, that linguistic element could be a really terrific advantage, but I worry that the, um, the censorship regime is making um, those inroads um, less productive than they otherwise would have been. Thank you. I'm sorry, I'm monopolizing the questions, Ali, but I've got, I want to now ask uh, Brendan first about international brigades, because President Zelensky has has announced the formation of an international brigade, which has the potential to be a huge mobilising force. We don't yet know how effective it will be, but I can see that the the draw of it will be be very strong. Ironically, the, the sort of 1936 Spanish Civil War international brigades were actually a Soviet initiative. It was um, sort of brought to life by communist networks throughout Europe. So there's something neat about the Ukrainians turning the tables on that. But the idea, um, Brendan, of of mercenary soldiers being a critical part of an army is is a very European, a sort of old European concept, isn't it? Yes, indeed. It it goes back uh, hundreds of years. And the dividing line between straightforward mercenaries, i.e. people who fight for money and money alone, um, and uh, ideologically motivated volunteers uh, is actually, um, although the, the two concepts are quite different, uh, in reality, um, it's usually uh, a pretty um, fluid dividing line. And we see this particularly in the Thirty Years' War, which uh, blew Germany uh, apart from 1618 uh, to 1648, which, very crudely speaking, pitched uh, Catholic uh, supporters of um uh, the empire or the emperor uh, against uh, Protestants. Um, and you saw a very large number of uh, people who supported the so-called Protestant cause in Europe from England and Scotland who were upset with uh, the Stuart monarchy, feeling that they were not doing enough to defend the Protestant cause in Europe, going across to Germany and fighting. And their reasoning was that if we don't fight the, um, the Antichrist, the universal monarch, the threat posed to English liberties as they understood them from absolutism and from counter-reformation Catholicism, then the next thing we'll know, uh, the emperor and the Spaniards will have moved from Germany into low countries, and then, of course, they will have a jumping-off point to attack southern England. And what's interesting about 
the current situation, obviously there are many differences, but actually the the framing that we're seeing uh, of the conflict is that actually there isn't really much talk anymore about alleged uh, domestic divisions in Ukraine, not even on the Russian side, is my impression. They are framing this as a struggle against the West and against NATO. Uh, and we are framing it, in my view, rightly, of course, but I would say that, um, as a struggle uh, against the encroachments of Russia and of, uh, you know, the territorial irredentism of, of Putin and uh, what is effectively a dictatorial regime. And so the argument on the Western side is, uh, if we don't stop Putin or at least slow him down in Ukraine, then he will move on to the Baltic states, he'll move on to Poland, uh, and you'll have some kind of domino effect, which I don't think are fanciful fears, because certainly with regard to the Baltic states, he already has a track record uh, of menaces, and uh, we already know that uh, he wants to reconstitute uh, the Soviet Union within its territorial boundaries. Whether there is a constituency for such activity, of course, is not clear. I would imagine there probably is. Uh, there's a huge understandable sympathy for the Ukrainian cause in the West. There are also quite a large number of unemployed and disillusioned uh, soldiers for coming from Western armies out of Afghanistan who feel that uh, the good cause has been abandoned, who also feel that Putin had a hand in that, uh, and for whom plausibly uh, Ukraine would be the next place uh, to make a stand. Um, so that, that may very well be uh, the vector through which uh, the West uh, support the Ukrainian uh, cause, uh, keeping their involvement below a certain sort of um, a certain sort of threshold, which would then not trigger perhaps uh, a violent response or a more violent response from Putin. The only thing that I would add is that there was extensive discussion um, at the meeting on Putin's sanity and his his state of mind. And there was uh, consensus uh, from all those present, including people who've actually met Putin on numerous occasions in official capacities, that he had, uh, his, he had simply changed in terms of his personality. Uh, he'd become much more of a recluse. Uh, he was less able to engage. Uh, he appeared to be actually physically unwell, possibly terminally so, uh, that even his performances uh, on, on television showed uh, sort of, you know, restricted cognition. Um, and, and so the, the, there was a big question mark um, over actually his rationality and judgment in a way that was not true in 2014 uh, or in 2004. And that again uh, made one wonder whether the, the, the classic Putin, who was somebody who, who would tend to test and then potentially step back uh, or, or simply to, to sort of probe uh, and maybe to, to wait uh, whether that was still the case or whether he would now behave in ways that nobody could, could calculate. Uh, but I'm afraid to say we had no answer on that. It was simply left uh, on the table as a question. It's interesting because presumably that question is also going through the minds of Russian citizens who find themselves led by a president who's doing these odd things. Although we should reflect that he has he's not suddenly started behaving oddly and this is a man who ordered the use of radiological and chemical substances to commit murder in the united kingdom over a, over a span of years so again things which would be inconceivable to 
most rational leaders, and yet he seems to have authorised them without uh, without thinking twice about it, indeed defending them, as indeed have you know his state in that sense. Um, Ali, do you want to ask a final question? Because we're going to have to. I was just. Going, I think we. Just, I mean, I was just going to say maybe just to wrap up that this is a a, a good example of power corrupting. I suspect. I mean, this is uh, if he's been. Uh, uh, praised. I, I was just very struck by his encounter with his head of his intelligence, you know, which uh, he basically humiliated him in public. And it was a classic case of the autocrat. And to go back to Suzanne's analogy, I mean, it's quite similar uh, to some of the uh, show performances of Saddam Hussein in his heyday. I mean, this ritual humiliation of your officials is a sign that things are going very badly wrong. <laughs> It is. It's the it's the terrorizing of your own people, yeah. which which is a special category of dictator, yeah, I think. Exactly. Um, where you're really, really ruling by fear, and and that question then of of how how anybody gets enough momentum to to stand up to it is, I think, the critical one here. Brendan, thank you very much you, for Brendan. joining us. Yeah. Rory, yeah. thank you for joining us. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I fear that we're going to be talking about this a lot more. So this is probably just the first of many. It would be nice to think that weren't so, but I can't see any swift solution to this so um right. we'll, see, we'll speak to you again soon thank you thank you very much thanks brendan bye. thanks Susan. Bye.